Here with us to discuss the Fiscal Policy Institution and the effects on the district's budget priorities are Ed Lazier, the Executive Director. Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Tommy. It's really nice to see you. No, well, it's always good to see you, too. Welcome to the Always Real Talk set. You know how we do it here. We kind of just talk about what's real and what's going on. And as you know, it's, it's budget time. Yeah. And you guys do a phenomenal work in terms of just making sure that the real priorities, and I'll say real for those everyday working people, they consider them real priorities that make their lives better. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Fiscal Policy Institute and the work that you've been doing and how long you guys been around. Yep. Well, um, so I was really honored uh, 20 years ago almost to, to be the initial executive director of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute. It wasn't my idea, but I was allowed to be its leader from the beginning, uh, from day one. And really, our mission is to recognize that budgets have a huge impact on all of our lives and whether we have a good quality of life in D.C., but also really whether we're going to be able to tackle the biggest challenges and the biggest economic and racial inequities we have in the city. And that's sort of what we do. We, we try to become experts in the city's budget and understand the trends in things like unemployment and poverty and affordable housing, and then put those two together with information that's easy for policymakers to digest, easy for residents to use, and easy for advocates so that we can fight for a budget that actually, again, make sure that every child has a good school to go to, but also that we are really addressing the city's inequities and, and addressing the barriers that we know particularly that kids of color face. So let me, let me ask you a question. At the beginning stages of the Institute being formed, like uh, who founded? How was it started? Because well, people know about the fiscal policy, but I don't think many people know the, how it originated and who, yeah. who was the founding members. That's Walk a great question. That. So it's, it's not a secret, but it's probably not that well known that we're actually part of a network of organizations. So almost 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago, uh, an organization called the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, which focuses on poverty at the national level, dealing with Congress and federal policy, decided that it wanted to nurture good progressive economic policy at the state level. So they created a network of organizations and helped funnel foundation money to them to support that work. So the, it's called now called the State Priorities Partnership. Okay. DC Fiscal Policy Institute is one of those members. There are about 45 state-based organizations around the country. Of course, DC is not a state, but we should be. We should and be. that's why we're part of the State Priorities Partnership. DC statehood. Yeah. Yes. So the, the in person who conceived of the DC Fiscal Policy Institute, was, her name is Iris Lav. Mm -hmm. She helps support the network across the country, but she's uh, been in DC uh, her entire adult life, and she really wanted to make sure that there was a, a good economic progressive presence in DC. And so she did the initial fundraising, she hired me, and to uh, let me take and it the from there. Is, and the rest and it's history. changed my life. And it's changed it's your been life. a life-changing experience to be able to focus my energy and skills on making my adopted hometown a better place. Because it's the only place I've lived as an adult was D.C. It's D.C. Well, yeah. you know, the, this year, Columbia, D.C., we're just a great city. But now, when it comes to the Institute itself, um, what are your priorities? Like, what do you see? I know you mentioned housing. You mentioned um, education. Yeah. Walk us through the core things that you are focusing on uh, for this budget. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in general, our mission is to use our energy and resources to focus on the biggest inequities in the city, the things that are holding families and holding children behind. And so we do start uh, with a, a tremendous focus on housing and homeless services, uh, a good focus on schools, and then on what we're doing to create jobs are sort of probably the three biggest buckets. Um, you know. The city, the city's always had 
inadequate supply of affordable housing. But of course, that has gotten terribly, uh, terribly worse in the last 15 to 20 years as the city has prospered, as more people have wanted to live here, but that has pushed housing prices up to the point where there are 30,000 families who have very low incomes and spend more than half their income on housing every month. We know that, know that those families are facing instability. The parents don't have time to focus on getting a job or maintaining a job as, as much as they would want because they're just worried about paying their rent every month. Now you said it was, it was 30 per, they spend 30 percent of the income they spend 50%, or 50 percent of the more income than half every on month. renting or rent, owning uh, yeah. or whatever. They spend yeah. 30, 50 percent of their income on That's that. That's right. And when and you start to look at the housing inequities, where do you see the largest gap? Because it's, you believe it's an inequity, right? Absolutely. Okay. So let's walk us through what does that mean, and how do you define inequity in, in the housing crisis that we're facing here in yeah. the city? Well, you know, if we go back, you know, looking seriously historically, of course, the history of discrimination and racism in our country and in the city has meant that particularly black families in the city have not had the opportunity to, kind of, to gain the kind of wealth and have the home ownership rate. Uh, and the wealth that comes from home ownership that white households have, leaving black families primarily to be in the renter's market, and then subject to the whims of the renter's market. What, and, and what's happened is gentrification has swept across the city and created an enormous increases in housing prices, well, leaving the lowest income families, the people who are on Social Security or cash assistance or in low-wage part-time jobs. Those are the folks who have the most severe well, problems. Well, I, I want you to hold that thought. We're going to come right back, right. but we want to talk about the definition of gentrification because All that's right. a word that's kind of out there. People use it, but people have different meanings for their own definition. Let's talk about that when we come back, and we'll be right back uh, at Always Real Talk. It's your boy Marvelous on IG at His Marvelous Life, and if it's Always Real Talk, you know it's going to be real. Welcome back to Always Real Talk. We're here with the Executive Director of the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, Ed Lazier. Ed, uh, once again, we were talking about gentrification and the word gentrification. Yeah. And that means so much to so many people in the city. If you're in one part of the city, it can mean one thing. If you're in this part of the city, it can mean something else. Walk us through your experience and what you're seeing uh, as you guys are looking at the data, looking and talking to people and institutions and organization, walk us through what that means. In, sure. In, in so, uh, you know, obviously gentrification is a really loaded term. And sometimes, it's loaded. Yeah, super loaded term. But uh, I think we all, anyone who's in D.C., really knows what we're talking about, right? I mean, it's the fact that and it is, well, it is an economic yeah. issue. Well, let, let, me, let me frame it. Yeah. I, I believe gentrification is about economics. Mm -hmm. Right. Either Absolutely. you can either you can afford to be here, or you can't. Right. And the reasons why you can afford to be here, there may be underlying tones based on that. Yeah. Right. But if you can afford to, anyone could come in and yeah. buy a two million dollar house. Right. This yeah. is where you want to be. Not everyone can do that for a number of different reasons. But yeah. walk us through what you see sure. and what you're hearing from I mean, the folks you know, out there. The district has become an, an increasingly popular place. More people have moved in, particularly people with college degrees and therefore higher earnings potential. And you know, there's only a certain amount of land and a certain amount of space that housing can be. And to make it sort of real for me, I, I tend to think about the Green Line, which was not open when I moved to DC. And it opened since I've been here. And it opened at places like U Street and Columbia Heights and Petworth. And when we think about gentrification in DC, we think about those neighborhoods because opening up a metro station made those neighborhoods popular. More people wanted to live there, and in a world where only so many people can live near a metro station, 
that's going to push housing prices up, mm -hmm. and that means certain people are going to be able to afford to stay, and certain people are not. And that's the economics we're talking about is where more and more neighborhoods become desirable that had once been uh, affordable, low-cost neighborhoods had become a, a desirable to a larger number of people with money. Those folks come in, push housing prices up. Well, let's, let's talk through that, right? Because as you just mentioned, you mentioned Petworth, you mentioned U Street as areas that received Metro, and then people started to revitalize those, those yeah. neighborhoods, and the city has invested an incredible amount of money, too, in housing over there. I don't, I don't know who's living over there. I don't know <laughs> if the people who were supposed to be living over there for affordability still there, but I remember yep. put a lot of money in those areas. And, and, if, and I, I think that some would say, and uh, you may agree, that it, the, the proper planning and oversight on how we invested those dollars and how we followed those dollars to ensure that it actually was targeted over the long term to keep affordable housing there, I'm not sure if that was is really well, as, as strong as yeah. we see it today, well, right? So you've, so, hit the, you've hit on the key issue, so, right? So, so given that, walk yeah, yeah. with me. So given that, now we know that Congress Heights, now we know the Anacostia Metro, you know, now we know Deanwood, we know that's where all the it's development's coming. being pushed east of the river. Yep. And I think we have people that live over there that, and of course I live east of the river, that gets a sense that, hey, we could see this whole thing happen again if we don't change some of the ways we actually use taxpayers' resources and yep. lands and incentives right. to ensure that we don't see this 20 years from now That's and we're still, somebody else is having a show and having a conversation and talking about the, the right. same exact thing. They remember when Deanwood used to be affordable, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is the whole goal is can we as a city get ahead of the curve? We know the development's coming. We know that's going to be pushing housing prices up. Can we step in to help people buy their homes, to help people buy their apartment buildings, to have the city buy land that it can then use for permanently affordable housing so that as the neighborhood changes, there may be new folks coming in, there may be new money coming in, but there's also those long-term residents who have a base of affordable housing that they can call their own, and they can call that community their own, and they know they have security to stay there for a long time. If we had done a better job at U Street and Columbia Heights and Petworth of anticipating what was coming, we'd have a more mixed income, a more diverse community now. But you, you know, when you mention anticipating, we all anticipated when uh, Columbia Heights was built in Target, and we were going to build condos around there, and we, we anticipated because there were tax incentives, as you well know, you yeah. pay close attention to those yeah, that were needed, right? And with those tax incentives, which I support because it was going to change and, and develop the area that was underdeveloped, right? So in, anyone living there wants to have the amenities of, of, of shopping. I live in a neighborhood, and we don't have that, right? So of course I want it, and my neighbors, they want it. The real question is if we're putting those incentives in place, the question is, what, 10 years ten years ago, 19 years ago, whenever, I can't yep. forget how long it was ago, are there still affordability in that incentive that we put out? Yep. And if the answer is no, then is that really a sham? Like, are we just kind of saying it and then we're closing our eyes and five years, nobody ever looks back to find out that we meet all those affordable housing requirements? Because that's what, that's what we give incentive for, Absolutely. right? And so when you go back there now, can you now have you guys went back to see if the affordability and the level of affordability is in those areas where we put tax incentives and tax credits? Has anyone ever went back and did that type of you research? Know, I don't think they have, although I think even if they had, they would still see that it wasn't quite enough. But I think you're right. 
that. Yeah. I mean, we all, whether it was specific obligations that weren't met or other factors, just looking at how the neighborhoods have changed, it's something that we all own responsibility for, right? If it's not affordable anymore, if it if we did not preserve affordable housing, then we, as a city, we all own that well, responsibility we, we, for that. We, that was the idea, yeah. right? And I, I think that a bill was uh, kind of passed that required the D.C. auditor to go back and look at those. Yeah. Have you seen that report? Uh, yeah, I mean, we know that we're not keeping doing a good job of keeping track of But have they, have, you, have you seen, have they, have they produced a report? Have you seen a report? They, they're supposed to go to these projects in which we spent taxpayer dollars, yeah. incentives, and everyone promised the world, yeah. and they're supposed to go back and then verify if we actually met the well, those people still there, Yeah. right? I think we have to be careful. And I think when people see this, and they see that no one's watching, or they see that, because I know you guys follow this all the yeah. time. It'd be interesting, you should go take a look at it, to see if a report's been done on the areas that we've already spent money according to the law, it should be, and that we can get our hands on it to see, you know, is Susie Q still living there? Because yeah. you know what happens is Susie comes out, and Jane comes out, and, and, and John, and everyone comes out and say, hey, we're gonna be living here, and this is wonderful and great. Yeah. But are they there 12 months after the, the, the ribbon cutting? Are they yeah. there? 18 months after it, and then if they're gone, who is there? And like, who's living there? And if, yeah. if it's not people that meet that requirement, yeah. then what you see 10 years is someone saying, hey, this is changing, you guys took this from me. Yeah, and you know, I, we definitely should see what the auditor's done, and I know they've done some good work, but we actually don't even have to go that far. We can just look at the city's housing trust fund, our main tool to finance building of affordable housing, and under that trust fund, the law says, 40% of the housing that's built under the trust fund has to be for our lowest income families. Again, talking about a law right. that's been set, but we also know that in four of the last five years, the percentage has been well below that. We haven't even met our own target as set in law. Like we're not holding ourselves accountable. Even today, even this year, the trust fund's unlikely to meet its target to serve the folks who need the most help. So yeah. it's definitely an issue of we pass the laws and then we don't even follow, including checking it to make sure that folks who who got the affordable housing were able to stay there. That's what I hear. That's, yeah. what, that's what I hear. I believe uh, you it. Know, I, I hear it here, of course. I'm on, on, we're here on a historic 8th Street, and yeah. we hear it all the time. People are concerned that it's not about people coming to Congress Heights. It's not about people coming to no. the Deanwood. It's about if we're going to give you our land, and we're going to give you all these incentives, and you're going to promise that these things are going to be affordable, Absolutely. then five years, are they still, one, affordable, and two, are some of the people still there? Right, because no one leaves a place in which is a brand new facility yeah. next to a metro, yeah. and all of a sudden they decide, I just, I just don't want to live here anymore. This is a bad place. Yeah. For me. Um, so it just, we'll, 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 we'll do that. But we, we're gonna take a break, and we'll come back. And when we come back, we'll talk about the 2019 city budget. I know that all you right. have a lot of ideas. Uh, the, the mayor is, who's doing a phenomenal job, has laid out, I guess, the citywide budget forms and we should be taking up budgets yep. for residents and uh, we love to hear from you from you we know that you always have an a b c d <laughs> list so we'll come yeah. back with ed's a b c d <laughs> list and, and just it's always real talk welcome back we're here talking about the 2019 budget priorities and we're here with ed lazier who is executive director of DC Fiscal Policy Institute, where you, this is, I know this is a, an enjoyable moment, <laughs> a joy, enjoyable and painful moment at the same time as we go through the budget process. Is that 
you know, when I look at those budget books and those tables and I see the numbers, I know that they're translating the services that make a difference in people's lives. So it means a lot to me and it's why we fight in the budget process to make sure that every dollar is going to the things that are most important and most needed for D.C. residents. So, so you get all geared up? Are we you, are, are all you geared, geared up. up down at that building called the John A. Wilson building? We testify a lot okay. and we're going to the mayor's budget engagement forums. We are training people across the city, including okay. we're having some training coming up. Had one last weekend in Ward 8. We've got one coming up in a couple of weeks in Ward 7. Where let's, we are, let's back up and talk about yeah, that yeah. training. What exactly? It's training, really, what, do you, what exactly? So if somebody I, wants to get involved, wants to be trained, yeah. how do they do it? Well, we're holding training so they can okay. check us out at the D.C. Fiscal Policy Institute, dcfpi.org. But, you know, my goal is to give people enough information about the budget so that they feel empowered to be engaged, give them enough information to be, you know, dangerous down at the Wilson Building so that they can go uh, at a hearing and testify about what they think their community or their family or their children need and also be able to answer when a policymaker asks questions like, well, where are you going to get that money from? Or how much do you think we need? Like, give them enough information so that they can express their own priorities. So it's not a chance for me to tell them what I care about right, in the budget. Just, it's you're really just, just, you're just very informative. Budget 101. Say, here it is. Yeah, here's how it works. And if people have issues, this is how you find you it. You know, make so, sure you talk to the mayor, make sure you talk to the council, you know, those kind of details. So what are the top, what are the top three items uh, from a budget priority that, that the fiscal policy yeah, yeah. is really focused on? Well, I will focus, I'll tell you our top priorities. For You know, we were really uh, happy when Mayor Bowser got elected first time around where she made housing and homelessness a major part of her campaign and then followed through on those commitments. And it's true, they're amazing to put $100 million into the city's housing trust fund, for example. But we also know now that it's just not enough, that the city has become increasingly unaffordable and we're not keeping up with the loss of units that really low and moderate income families can afford. So first and foremost, we want to see the mayor double her investment. She did. She doubled it when she got into office last time. We want to see yeah. her do it again. Well, I, you know, we have to, you know, I've been around this thing for a long time. Yeah. And people have been talking about their commitment to the, yeah. first of all, the creation of the Affordable Housing Trust Fund, which, you know, you, you're very familiar Back with. in the day. Just to create it was a fight. Yeah. Then to put some money in it was yeah. another fight. And then to, and then to the fight money. the money that was in there so somebody didn't take that money was a fight. And I have to give this mayor credit because she, she got elected. Yeah. And she put her money where her mouth is right away. Yeah. And she funded it. And she kept it there. And it yep. wasn't a fight. It wasn't right. you guys going to fight the council to find money to put in it because some money was taken out or it wasn't enough money in it. The money was there. Yeah. Right? And I know that you've said, yes, we have to, we need more. Because as times change, needs change. Yeah. The spread of the cost change. Right. Yeah. So there's probably because I remember a hundred million dollars. What about five years ago? Or no, probably eight or nine years ago. The goal was to put a hundred million dollars. That's in. right. And now this mayor did that. That's right. Right. Yeah. And then four years later, right. we need more money. As long as you're talking to people who are saying that I can't afford to stay in D.C. and they're feeling pushed out, yeah. that's a sign that we need more. Right. Exactly. Yeah. How, how are we doing with the money we're spending? Uh, we're doing a pretty good job, actually. So the housing department in D.C. has gotten much better. They've responded to criticism and hired more staff, and they're doing more oversight, and they're getting more money out the door. So things uh, are positive. You know, it's moving in the right direction. I remember when it wasn't moving. It's moving. Remember? Yeah, I think you've been around when now. the money wasn't moving. Yeah, this no, money's no. moving. They're doing so a good job. The, the housing production trust fund, the housing, affordable housing, yep. clearly is one of your priorities. So that's one. Second is we just need to end homelessness. You know, cities across the country are making the commitment to end chronic homelessness, and we should too. Mayor Bowser has done a lot to uh, put more, uh, create newer, nicer shelters and to move families out of shelter into their own housing. 
But again, when I walk uh, near my office at Union Station, all I see are people sleeping under, under blankets or in tents. And that's, again, telling me that we're not doing enough. So that's number two, is let's make a commitment to what it really takes to end chronic homelessness over four years and put us on a path. And I, I really want to see the mayor, I'd love to see the mayor commit to those things. She said... So when you say commit, like what do you say, mean by commit? Because commit is real resources, well, right? We understand it's a, affordable housing trust fund was $100 million. That's right. Everyone was trying to get to $100 million. The mayor puts $100 million there. Now we're trying to get more money. Yeah. Understand it. Got it. Ending homelessness, we want to do it. We want a commitment to do it. Yeah. But what does that mean from a resources perspective? Uh, I mean, we know that we need, we'll need more money to do it, but we also know that it's not out of reach. You know, we just this last how year. Is, how much is more money? Right? Uh, I mean, for just this for, just for folks watching, what, to, to put us money? on a four-year plan, yeah. this first year we need thirty million dollars in the scheme of an eight billion dollar budget. That's hopefully pretty reasonable, right? And how would that thirty million dollars? Because I, I know you just give me the A's and B's. Yeah, of that 30 most of that money is going to go to helping folks who've been on the street for the longest amount of time, who are in the worst health and just putting them in their own apartment with case management services, which we know from our own experience and experience across the country, helps people stabilize their lives. It actually saves money because they're not relying on emergency services, they're not calling ambulances or uh, having crises that send them to the emergency room the way they were before. So it's actually fiscally responsible as well as humanely uh, responsible as well to help people put in their housing. Okay, so we got housing, yep. we got homelessness, and, and what's the third? You know, you're not going to be surprised. We need to focus on our schools, right? Okay. So I was honored to serve on a working group that the mayor put together this last year to look at the school funding formula, and we highlighted three really important things. Is One is schools need a solid increase year to year to reflect how much their costs are rising, because we've but, actually had uh, what, what they, inconsistent what, 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 school what budgets. They're getting, they're getting an increase every year now. Not guaranteed. It's I mean, been, well, it's been I mean, really up and down been, over the last been, 10 years. For the last five to six years, it's been an increase every year. We only caught up in the last two years. Before, before two years ago, our school funding had actually fallen relative to inflation for the decade before that. Because we had a recession where school funding got right. cut well, it got and didn't cut. come back up. It didn't come back up enough. So you, it wasn't meeting the CPI, is that what That's right. It was not meeting our consumer okay. price index. It had fallen below that, which meant... If, you're, if your costs are rising and your money's not rising at the same level, mm -hmm. that means you just don't have enough money to keep paying the same number of teachers and oh, counselors. Oh, got it. I got it. But over the last yeah. two years, two years we've been catching the mayor's up. budget has been, the CPI has pretty, been... Particularly to fund the school. Pretty equal, the, is that the right? teacher contract, yeah. So you're looking for, you believe that we should have more, we more than a, a CPI? It's, is that need, what you're saying? We, need, we, need a, we just need to keep it CPI and make sure that we commit to that every single year so that each year... Schools know they're going to have at least enough to maintain what they were doing the year before. And we're not, we haven't been doing that. In, in order to do that, it's, it's based on the per-pupil formula, though, correct? It's, it's adjusting that so per-pupil formula. So if you have less students in a school, yeah. then you're going to have less money coming to the school. Uh, not necessarily, because DCPS doesn't necessarily send the money dollar for dollar based on the number of students. But it's, but it's, you get my yeah. point, right? I, I mean, get your if point. you had 300 students yeah. and, you know, you had 800 students and now yeah. you have... 600 students. Yeah, you know, for it's, sure. It's well, you're going to need fewer teachers. So the other thing that's been really important, so I was uh, honored to serve on a commission looking at school finance that I think actually you may have commissioned when you were chair of the council looking at our fi uh, school finance formula. Yeah. And one of the things that we recommended was creating a part of the school funding that was specifically targeted on students considered at risk. Kids who were in low-income families, in uh, kids who were homeless or in foster care or who had fallen behind uh, their grade level. Um, 
and the council created that part of the formula. So we're now sending about $2,400 for every at-risk student to their schools. Mm -hmm. There's two problems. One is the study that looked at creating at-risk funding said we need $4,000 per student to really provide the smaller class sizes, the extra counselors, the after-school programming. But that was the that was the initial report said 4,000 right. was the number we need. It was, but it was zero at first, That's right? right. Okay, so we went from zero to 2,400. We have made progress. And, in, and this is over the last, what, three to four years? Uh, it's been five years, yeah. Five years? Yeah. So, you know, five years ago, it was zero. Yeah. Today is 2,400. And yeah. now you're just saying, hey, we're seeing that we never got to the 4,000. And we really need to be at the 4000 Yeah. Well, the other key part of the story is, mm -hmm. so we might send $2,400 per student to, to a high school like Anacostia High School for their at-risk students. Mm -hmm. But what's happened in the school funding formula is that we've told Anacostia, oh, you have to use your at-risk funding for your librarian, while Wilson High School gets a librarian, and they don't have to use their at-risk money for that. So we're actually not even really giving the schools this additional money. We're giving them the money, but telling them they have to spend it on their basic staffing positions, not the kind of supplemental things that would make a difference. And, and you know, life. I know that with, 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 with my son at Wilson and my daughter just graduated, I yeah. got it. Well, look, we'd love to have you on. You know, hopefully we'll get you back soon right. and we'll talk about, you know, after the budget is submitted. Yeah. And we look forward to having you back, okay? That sounds good. All right, great. All right. Well, coming up, we'll be talking to celebrity chef Brian Hill. <music>